Hey, uh, it's good to be with you. It's, it's in some ways crazy to have a microphone on uh, for this, this gathering of people. It feels like so strange because like, we could just get in a circle and talk together without any uh, amplified sound. However, it is, uh, I think, a win. I think we actually have to have this on so it connects into the live stream. So we love you, live streamers. We're even having a projected mic for you so you can hear this. Otherwise, I feel like I could get this to you and it would be maybe one degree of weirdness down, right? Because we have several degrees of weirdness ramped up. We wear these masks so everybody looks like ninjas or doctors. Um, so every, I feel like everybody's very distinctly a doctor or a ninja. Um, Henry, little Henry, he's a ninja, clearly. Uh, Katie Forsyth looks more like a doctor. Um, some doctors are like ninjas, though, so we appreciate them. Um, here's what I want to do is uh, I actually just want to start our time with just a little bit of an extended time of prayer. And so for those in the room and uh, for those at home, this might actually be more challenging at home than it is in this room, uh, just because you're, you're already here set apart kind of in a different space. And maybe you can focus your attention maybe at home if there's cars driving by or kids that are not actually participating in what you're doing. I get that, kids, if you need to do something else. But I would like to, to help our, our time launch into uh, worship through prayer this morning. And uh, specifically, what was on my heart was just kind of, I was kind of feeling uh, a, a weight, uh, just the, the numbers that we are hearing, the numbers that come out in news reports about uh, the number of people that are sick and dying in our world um, are, are crazy numbers. I think they're, they're so big and so vast that it can almost, we can become numb to them. Uh, there's something, uh, just disaster fatigue, you know, uh, that can set in to where we stop feeling the weight of the brokenness and the pain you know, you get one, one of these 500,000 stories and it's heart-wrenching of, of people losing loved ones or um, people losing jobs or just all the brokenness that's happening. And to be fair, the, the, you know, people are, it, it's not just now that coronavirus, coronavirus is not when death entered into the world, right? Like it was, has been here since Genesis 3. But um, I just wanted us to take a moment and just beg God to move in the midst of uh, this, uh, this virus, to move in the midst of our moment and beg that he, would, um, that he would flex his muscles and put an end to that, this disease. I know there's other diseases and there's a thousand things we could pray for. Um, we could pray that God would end cancer. Ultimately, the prayer is that Jesus would come back. That's how all diseases get resolved, is that we pray that Jesus would come back. Um, but just to, to pray for, for God to move in power in this particular moment um, in, in the suffering that's being felt. So let's just take a, take, take a minute, and we're just going to pray together. And so you, you, you have an act. It's not, I'm not praying for you, okay? You're, you're going to do this. We're going to do this together, okay? So um, let's, uh, let's just, if it helps, close your eyes, bow your head. Uh, kids, you can pray. Uh, the, the wild thing is that God actually loves your prayers. Uh, Jesus loved talking to little kids. And so your, uh, your prayers can, can be as varsity, as real, as powerful 
um, as any adult, any um, theologian has ever prayed. Your prayers are powerful. And so kids, join us. Don't sit out on this. Let's talk to God. And um, just to make that super simple, um, take a moment and just talk to God about something that's broken in your own world. You don't have, let's, we're gonna amplify that out to the whole world, but in your own world, where are you feeling, experiencing brokenness, sadness, pain, suffering? Where are you experiencing that? Let's talk to God about that. All right, now just take a minute and uh, the brokenness, suffering, pain that exists uh, in the lives of one of your neighbors, your family, uh, extended family, uh, someone around our city, someone, someone that you know. And now particularly just for uh, the brokenness that's being experienced through a global pandemic, hundreds and thousands of people getting sick, being hospitalized. Um, pray that God would move in the midst of that, that he would bring healing and that he would bring revival. Um, both of those things, spiritual and physical healing into our world right now. Heavenly Father, we are here this morning because we want more of you. We are here in this place. We are uh, setting aside this time. If, you're, if you can't, if, if for folks who can't gather with us, they are setting aside time trying to give our attention and our focus to you. And we are coming not with all of our great things to offer you, but we are coming with very empty hands and uh, very needy hearts this morning saying, God, would you meet us here? God, would you speak through your word? Would you teach us anew about the goodness and the glory of Jesus and the gospel that he has brought? Would you give us space to be refreshed and refueled in our worship this week, this moment, God? We ask this in Jesus' name, believing that you can, you can do this. Amen. Okay, so um, there is talk about another stay-at-home order. And so I've, I haven't, I've purposely not used many like coronavirus or like quarantine illustrations, but this one is just... Uh, honestly, it's just right here in the text that we're in the, today, and so I can't avoid it. Um, but uh, God's people are going to receive a stay-at-home order, and so I just was uh, thinking about this. And, and the fact is that there's, there's, a talk, there's talk of another stay-at-home order in Texas. And um, I, it got me thinking about the first time that the stay-at-home order was issued. It was kind of like a new thing, and stay-at-home orders were getting issued all over the country. And... Um, People, interestingly enough, they would operate with varying degrees of uh, strictness about the stay-at-home order, right? Like that was what the one constant that existed throughout uh, that has existed throughout quarantine is that everybody's in different places uh, with how they are handling that as a family. If they're going to the grocery store, they're picking up groceries, they're having them delivered. Are they wiping down their groceries? Are you going to restaurants? And now there's just so many different layers of like, what does quarantine mean to you, right? So there's just uh, varying degrees of uh, how people, how strict people are with their quarantine, right? Uh, and uh, the, I heard this and I thought it was funny that Americans, you, one thing we learned during this whole thing is that Americans will quarantine for exactly three months and not a minute longer. 
because uh, after that, then it's just like, hey, we're done. We're going to the beaches or uh, we're going to go on trips or whatever it is that you are going to do. And uh, I think what happens over the course of time with all of this is that people can grow uh, complacent about the reality of a danger when that danger feels really distant, right? So, so when, when a danger feels really distant and, and you're constantly being warned about it, then you will over time become more complacent or more relaxed about that danger, and I, I've, I've just wondered how different or like how strict people would be if in, instead of it being coronavirus, if it was the bubonic plague, which there was a case of the bubonic plague found in Mongolia. And so there's like a real time potential case study on like how strict people really can be with quarantine, right? Because that would be a whole nother level of quarantine if it was the bubonic plague, I would think. Right, because uh, a lot of the freedom or flexibility, flexibility or complacency about quarantine is whether or not it really applies to you or how much it will impact you. Bubonic plague, I'm, it's it's a different ball game. You're pretty sure that that's going to impact you, right? Um, but the reality is, is that we can develop these this complacency to these stay-at-home orders. And what we're going to look at today is a stay-at-home order that God's people received in the Book of Exodus. And this would be actually a defining moment for God's people, a defining moment in the history of redemption that we are tracing through the Old Testament. And that's what we're tracing is this history of redemption, the history of God's rescuing of his people for all time. But this moment we're looking at is, is maybe the defining moment in this Old Testament history of redemption. And there's something in this stay-at-home order uh, that the Israelites received that we today cannot grow complacent about. My, I, I am concerned with how faithful and how diligent we are as a church uh, about uh, you know, responding to local authorities and their leadership trying to help us uh, through a pandemic, which is a terribly difficult job. Okay, they're doing, they're doing a very difficult job, one that I'm sure they did not sign up for when they were like, you know what, I, I wanna run for office. You know, they did not have this in mind. And so they're trying to lead through that. And so I, I do want us to be sensitive to local authorities. That's why we have like a fraction of the people that would fit in this room, in this room. That's why you're all wearing masks. That's why a lot of you are on a television screen or a computer screen or a phone screen or whatever you're on. Okay, that's because we're being sensitive to that. But the ultimate stay-at-home order, the ultimate authority that I want us to be sensitive to is not our local authorities or government authorities, it's God's authority. Because there's something in the stay-at-home order that the Israelites received that we cannot grow complacent about. And so the, the history of this people, the, the Israelite people, is really a history of a family. We've seen that over the last weeks. If you've been tracking with us, it's really the history of a family, a family that God said he would use to rescue the world. So God's rescue plan, his plan for redemption is going to work through this family. But they keep coming into these situations where they themselves need to be rescued. So uh, last week we saw that with Joseph, uh, God's people, who, through whom he's going to rescue all of the world or offer this plan of rescue, they were in a bad situation where they had a famine. Uh, they were facing the famine and their family was potentially going to be ended through that famine. So a danger they needed to be rescued from. But now we're gonna come into a situation where they need to be rescued again because Joseph gets them all down to Egypt. If you know this story, so Joseph takes them you know, through his um, 
rise to power, he creates a space, kind of carves out room in, in Egypt, in this place called Goshen, uh, for them to be herdsmen and for them to really grow and expand as a family. And that's exactly what they did. They apparently had just tons and tons and tons of kids, okay? So it's very similar to the city church in a lot of ways, okay? Many, many kids, all right? And just a, a PSA, public service announcement in this moment. If you don't have kids in city church, I just want you to know that, that we're really glad that you're here. We really need you in this place. So that can be, hey, I don't have kids yet. I'm not, I'm single. Hey, uh, that, that matters. Or we don't have kids yet and we're married. Or we're empty nesters, all of whom are very welcome and needed inside of this church body. I'm dead serious about that. We need you, okay? Um, we need you to help us be a complete family as a church and, uh, and so that matters. And so, um, they are having tons of kids. They grow into this people that ultimately they're so big that they threaten the power of Egypt. Egypt realizes, hey, if these people turn on us, I don't know that we can defend ourselves against them. So they start to oppress this Israelite people. They make them into slaves. And so this is where the interesting thing happens in, in that the story of redemption that plays out in the Old Testament, if you track through this, in some ways, it's a plot line that's getting you all the way up to the point in history that you exist. Okay, so it's gonna move you through this point up to Jesus. Okay, he's kind of the center point of all of history. It all hinges on him. And now we're kind of coming back down from that high point until he comes back again. So the story moves, there's these, all these plot points that are helping you know, progress the story. But within the story itself, it actually parallels our own stories as individuals. That's what's kind of crazy is that what's happening in the lives of these Israelites is not just moving history towards us uh, or towards Jesus ultimately, it's reflecting things about our story and reflecting things about Jesus along the way, okay? So that's kind of the magic of this whole thing. So we get the context, or if you're tracking with me, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 12. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there uh, or get there in your app. We'll be in Exodus chapter 12, and I think we'll have the verses on the screen, but it might be helpful to have a Bible because I'm going to point out some other places in Scripture that I think are helpful. And so you get the point that, that God's people are being oppressed, okay? Uh, there, there is a large scale, um, like this is systemic oppression that's happening to God's people in Israel. And God, this is a very famous story. So if you know any parts of the Bible, you probably have heard about a guy named Moses, okay? Moses is a, is a huge figure, a looming figure in history. And the God calls Moses, I would love to spend like a, a thousand weeks talking about Moses and getting you into the nuances of all of his story, but the bottom line is God, in a very unique way, raises up a guy named Moses. He was raised in Pharaoh's home, uh, ends up kind of being kicked out of Egypt, runs away because of, uh, he fears for his life, spends a bunch of years as a shepherd, uh, and then God, out of nowhere, speaks to him from a burning bush and says, hey, I want you to go back because I've heard my people's cries, and I'm going to set them free. I'm going to use you to do it. Again, would love to spend so much time with his response to God in that, but nevertheless, he goes, okay? So you get to the point where actually Moses says yes. His brother Aaron comes along in the story and because Moses is like, I'm not a good communicator. God's like, I made your mouth. Stop arguing with me. And he's like, fine, I'll just bring Aaron. Aaron will talk for you. And so Aaron and Moses, they go to declare to Pharaoh that God wants his people free. And if you remember, the, the consequence of 
Pharaoh doesn't set God's people free is that he's gonna send plagues, right? So that's how uh, they're sort of going to get this story moving forward is, is God said, hey, whenever he says no and he's going to say no, tell him that a plague is gonna come. And, and these are famous plagues, right? You've, you may not know exactly what all of them are, but you've heard of these 10 plagues. And, uh, and so they're very famous, uh, like blockbuster movies are made about these plagues. But what was the point of the plagues? Have you ever thought about why God had used these plagues to do what he was doing? Was it just like a war that God was waging against Egypt and God was like, you know what I'm gonna use? Flies. I'm gonna use all of these counter, like counterintuitive war tools. I'm gonna use, you know what, I'm gonna make the Nile into blood because that will really freak them out. That's, you know, is that what he's doing? Is it just like uh, a war? So you have to see the role of the plagues to understand what we're talking about today, which is really the 10th plague, the 10th and final plague, the role of the plagues. It wasn't like God was trying to take out the Egyptians and he was like, you know, I, gnats and frogs, those are my weapons of choice. That's how I'm gonna take them out. He says, if you want, he actually articulates to Pharaoh, if I wanted to destroy you, I would just destroy you. So why is he sending all of these plagues? Remember, he turns the Nile into blood. He brings out all of these gnats and flies and frogs and darkness and kills a bunch of their, their, uh, their livestock and then makes everything dark for three days to where they can't even see, see one another. Okay, there's so much packed into these, but, but what was he ultimately doing? What he's doing is dethroning false gods. That's what, that's what Moses was, or that's what God was doing through Moses was he was actually using those plagues to dethrone these false gods. So you look at that first, first plague, he, he turned the Nile into blood, which to be, I mean, I actually think that would just be a horrifying thing. Uh, just very scary. Well, I don't know what just happened in there, but the whole thing just turned to blood. I would run, okay, because it seems like a horrible thing. But also, the, the, the reality is for the Egyptians, the Nile was life, man. That's where all of life was gonna be coming from. And so they worshiped a God of the Nile. And so do you see when God turns the Nile to blood, he says, where's your God now? There's a God of fertility. You know what that God in Egyptian culture, you know what kind of head that God had? He had the head of a frog. And God said, here's your frogs. Here's your flies, here's your gnats. There's a God, Hathor, the God of protection, and it had the head of a cow. And so God said, with this plague, he said, all of your cows just died. Where's your God of protection now? And so he systematically uh, went about showing these gods are fake. False gods are fake gods, okay? It's not just like they're kind of gods. It's not like they're JV gods and they're like, oh, I can kind of do some God things. They're fake gods. That's the problem with them is that they aren't real at, at all. And so uh, I just want you to pause for a moment and ask yourself, what are the gods of Fort Worth, Texas? What are the gods of our city and our culture? That if God was going to come in and show that he is truly God and that all these other things that you're worshiping are false, what would he, uh, what would he have to dethrone, both in your life and in our city? Maybe it's the way that we worship financial security, 
family life, status. The thing about humans is that whatever you ultimately come up with, and I would really encourage you to think that if God was going to dethrone a God in your own life, what would it be? And I, I think what's interesting about human beings is that ultimately our gods are not that innovative. They can all be traced back to one of probably four things where you can trace back to uh, comfort, approval, power, and control always are somewhere near the hearts of human beings. And so whatever your particular idol looks like, you could use your job for one, any number of actual worship purposes. So you could take your job and turn it into uh, this idol of, um, of approval. So you want to get approval inside your workplace or you want control of your life and you think financial security is going to give you control or power or comfort. You see, it's just an avenue. Like you can use all of these things and none of them are in themselves bad things. Like the Nile River, God made the Nile River. The problem was that the Egyptians were worshiping it. But the problem wasn't just that the Egyptians were worshiping it. You see that the Israelites had been in this place for 400 years. And so it wasn't just the Egyptians that were worshiping. It was the Israelites that were worshiping. And so God wasn't just in there flexing, showing the Egyptians how he's about to destroy them. He's in there reminding and showing the Israelites, his own people, who they should truly worship. So we're in Exodus chapter 12. That's where we'll pick up. It says this, this is God speaking, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so here he is, this is God speaking, the 10th plague, and he, what he's doing is dethroning the gods of Egypt who had made themselves, had been, been embedded in the hearts, not of the Egyptians, uh, but also in the hearts of his own people. Because God, the God of Israel at this time was nothing more than a bedtime story to many of these Israelites. This would have been around the time of like George Washington. And so there's fables and myths. I don't know what George Washington's teeth were made out of or what the cherry tree situation, but there's all these stories, you know, that kind of got handed down over time. And so for all we know, uh, it's just a bedtime story. And like I said, these gods were not just in the hearts of the Egyptians, they were in the hearts of the Israelites. You can see Joshua, who was alive for this exodus. He's one of the only, he's one of two guys, Joshua and Caleb, who make it from the exodus to the promised land. He's one of the only two. And he, when he, they're entering into the promised land, he says, put away the gods that your fathers worshiped in Egypt because the Egyptians weren't the only ones worshiping them. But they're seeing him now, they're watching through these plagues, the systematic destruction or dismantling of these false gods. And, and, the, and the question, that why is God gonna, why is he doing all these things? Why is he going to, did you see what he said? Execute judgments on the gods of Egypt. Why is he doing that? Why does he care? Is he just needy for attention? Have you like, just in, in terms of your own relationship with God, who you know him to be, do you, do you understand why he would want to dismantle the worship of other gods? It's because uh, 
It's, well, it's not because he's needy for attention. God is not sitting in his throne room just like, man, I'm just, I wish they would pay attention to me. They're over there worshiping the Nile God, and that's really hurting my feelings. It's not like some petty competition between the Easter Bunny and Santa, right? But I think we actually turn the God of the universe into this sort of just make-believe, whimsical Santa Claus who uh, is now like, you know what, Easter time comes and everybody's paying attention to Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy or something like that. He's not petty. The reason why he wants to dismantle these false gods is because it's in, it's, it's, it's the only hope that we have is in worshiping a real God who can save. It's God's kindness to turn our eyes away from false gods to the true God. And so that's why we need to be saved. That's why we need this uh, to respond and not be complacent to the stay-at-home order is because our very safety of our souls hinges upon it, like the Egyptians, or like the Israelites, because they weren't different from the Egyptians. And just like they weren't from, different from the Egyptians, we're not that different from the Israelites. Our worship gets polluted with false gods. In your life, there's, there's just... Any number of theologians, but especially John, I think John Calvin was quoted as saying, our hearts are just little idol factories. We just create idols. We just find ways to embed worship into our lives. For kids, like that might not be, it might be the worship of your, of, of your friend's approval or of the comfort that comes from a video game that you want to play or adults, the video game that you want to play or, you know, like whatever that might be. We just wedge these things in our hearts, but now there's a difference in this final plague that I think you might be able to see when you look back. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt. See, all these other times he had sent, uh, he'd used some force of nature, but now God is gonna show up on the scene and something's gonna happen in their midst is that all of their comparative righteousness will not stand. God had made a distinction between all, between the Israelites and the Egyptians. When the Egyptians' cows died, the Israelites' cows stayed alive. When it was dark for all the Egyptians, the Israelites had light still. When the Egyptians were covered in gnats, the, the Israelites were walking free and clear. But their worship was polluted. And so when God shows up, comparative righteousness is not enough to avoid his judgment. And so it doesn't really matter if you don't worship as many other gods as your neighbor does. As that coworker of yours that has a filthy mouth and a drinking habit and cheats on his wife. You think that you're a great person because you don't do as many bad things as other people, but God's standard is the standard. And so whenever he shows up, comparative righteousness is not enough to save you. And so when God says in this last plague, he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, not just the Egyptians. And he continues in verse 13, he says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
And so this is where the actual stay-at-home order comes into play. And you're like, I didn't see it. Well, if you go down to verse, uh, verse 22, uh, the last part of verse 22 says, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. He's saying, stay inside, stay at home. Don't leave your house, whatever you do. Because this is the way that you're gonna be saved. You wanna know where safety is found? You wanna know where you can actually be rescued? Uh, the, the, the heart of this message that I have for you is ultimately that there is safety only in the blood of the lamb. The only safety that you truly have in this life will be found underneath the blood of a lamb. And so look at this, uh, it's, it's, it's the blood of the lamb that is the distinction that God makes between those who are rescued and those that are not. It is not their Israelite status. Do you, do you see this? It's not your badge of being a Christian or your status of being a giver to a church or a member of a church or a accomplisher of Bible studies or a sayer of good things. It's not any of that. It's not your own righteousness. It's the blood of a lamb that rescues. Because when God comes to the Israelites' house, do you see what he says? Look, firstly, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see that you're an Israelite, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. That's not what he says. He says, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over over you. But what is it about the blood? Why is it, like, why did God make it, why, like, of all the things to choose, he says, in, all, in the detailed instructions you get in chapter 12, he's like, on the 10th day of the month, find a little bitty lamb. It's a year old, without blemish, a male one. It could be a goat or a sheep, either one. Get that thing, keep it in your house for a few days, and at twilight of the 14th day, kill the lamb. Like, kids, you're like, this story is not calm. It's not calm. So what is it about blood? Is God just weird? And he's like, I love red paint. It's the only way to get red paint on the door frame. So I'm just all about the red paint. It was life. What is, what is, because he didn't say, hey, get some of the blood of a lamb. You, you know, you could, like my daughter's been watching a bunch of vet shows lately, which is I don't know what to do with that. I mean, I love animals, but I don't love watching them get stitches, you know, which is what she's, she's watching them get stitches and stuff. And you can, they, you can draw blood from an animal without killing it. Do you know that? You can just take some of the blood and he doesn't say take some of the blood. He says, kill the lamb. And so the blood is the life of a lamb. It was a life for a life. The blood showed that there was a life sacrificed to rescue the life of the firstborn. And now you're probably like, okay, I get it. I get it. Jesus is the lamb. It's his blood that rescues us. I know this story. Cool. I'm glad that we came and this is a nice Sunday. Let's go uh, pick up lunch from our favorite place and eat it where we, wherever we can because we can't eat it there. Or you can probably actually. So it might be familiar to you, 
But what I'm, I'm, not, I'm not banking on this being the, the news that you've never heard or something that's like, what? Jesus is the lamb? I'm not banking on that. What I'm banking on is actually the Holy Spirit taking this very, very familiar news to you and seeing it in a very new light. I'm banking on the Holy Spirit actually taking the reminder of the truth of what happened in the Passover and seeing that in the gospel. What 1 Corinthians what 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, Paul citing, he's talking about how we live as Christians and he says, Christ who is our Passover lamb. I'm banking on God taking that truth, that very familiar truth that Christ was sacrificed for you and bringing it to life for you in a brand new way. Because here's the deal. What I know about me and what I believe is probably true about you is that I want so badly to hang my hat, to put my trust of God's approval um, in my value as a human being, in my accomplishments, and in the work that I've done, even in, even in ministry. So just so you know, like when you are a ministry leader, I, I pray that God would raise up hundreds of pastors from our church that would go to the nations and lead hundreds of thousands of churches that would thrive until Jesus comes back. But they very well could do that, not trusting in the blood of the lamb, but in order to finally try to feel some sense of approval because they did something right. You can be in ministry. You can do good things and worship false gods. People plant churches all the time, not because they believe God loves them, but because they're trying desperately to know that he, will, that he does. We want to hang our hats on our own work. We want our own accomplishments to be the things that are painted above our doors. We want uh, even the quality of our belief to be the thing that we can rest in at night. Well, I know that my belief in Jesus is strong. In the biblical picture of rescue that we see, there's no room for credit for anybody except for Jesus. One of my favorite pictures of this, and it's like, it's somewhat cliche, but it's just incredibly powerful to me. There's a, there's a father and a son, and their, their last name is Hoyt, Team Hoyt. And so if you know anything about this, fam, this father and son, the, 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 the son is totally, he, he, he's in a wheelchair. He can't even talk. He uses a computer um, with, with his tongue. He can kind of write out things to communicate with his dad. And one of the things he communicated to his dad is that I wanna, I wanna run. I wanna be in a race. And uh, if you, I mean, uh, there's a song, there's like a, a video of this with my Redeemer Lives playing behind it and it just crushes me every time. Like it's like an automatic tear fest for me to watch that video. But it, it's because it strikes the very core of what rescue is. See, this son finishes these races because his dad pushes him the entire way. You know what he, he, he adds to the equation in terms of energy to accomplish the race? Nothing, nothing. And that's true for us, our safety, our finish of this race, our safety is found in the blood of a lamb. And so I, you've got to hear this. My friend Halem, uh, he's a preacher in Austin, and he pointed this out that he, you know, some people probably went into their homes that night really confident that, hey, I, 
I took this hyssop branch, you know, whatever that is, and I dipped it in blood. I put it across the doorpost, and I walked in my house that night saying, the destroyer is going to pass over our house tonight, and I will live. Our firstborn will live. But a lot of people probably went in their house that night terrified, totally unsure as whether or not their child would last through the night. But do you know which of the children were saved? Both of them. Both of them. It didn't matter. It didn't matter how sure you were that God's grace was going to cover you. It it mattered only that the blood of the lamb covered the door. Do you see that? It made no difference how sure you were, how strong the quality of your faith. And here's the irony. This, this, this terrible, like sad thing is that we get so distracted with the quality of our faith instead of the object of our faith. God saves because of the blood. It's not the quality of your painting of the blood. It's the blood itself that rescues you. And so throughout the history of redemption, God uses lambs as a stand-in sacrifice. You saw it earlier if you read Genesis 22, where Isaac was redeemed with a ram. God had a ram stand in for his sacrifice. You see it here where a lamb stands in for the sacrifice of an entire family. You see it written into the law. On the day of atonement, there was a lamb that was standing in, not just for this family, but for an entire nation of Israel. And all of these things were pointing and pointing and pointing until John chapter 1, when John the Baptist would say, behold, the son, uh, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so my hope for you is that you would look to Jesus again today, that you would in fact behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Would you behold that there is a lamb, there is a sacrifice, a life for a life that was given You see, this Passover was just a shadow of a one-day Passover that would come. This day of judgment was the, was the first, but not the last. There will be a day of judgment in which you will look, you will be passed over, not because of all of the great things that you've done, but because you have trusted in the blood of a lamb. And that lamb is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You don't even have to just look back to behold, because I've asked myself, what does it even mean to behold the lamb? What are you guys going to do with that? Well, I would say you'd look back and, and see Jesus, like you would open up the scriptures and, and see him there, that you would read his words and engage with him, that you would talk to him in prayer, that you would talk to uh, other people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, you know what the magic is of interacting with other Christians is you're act- interacting with Jesus in them so you can behold the lamb as we engage with one another. But you don't just look back. You don't just look to the past. You can look to what the scriptures say is the future because All throughout Revelation, all the time, they're talking about this one thing, which is the lamb. Revelation 21, 23 says, And the city has no need of sun or moon. This is the eternal city. To shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. What a weird thing to say 
unless Jesus is the Lamb of God who was sacrificed, whose blood, whose lifeblood was poured out and is painted above the doorposts of your life to redeem you. And so my encouragement to you today is to behold the Lamb of God. Look back on this story of Passover and see that it was this reality that all people needed to be saved. It wasn't just the Egyptians who were standing underneath God's judgment. It was the Israelites. How will you be saved? Only by the blood of the Lamb. But you can be confident that you will be saved by this blood. It doesn't even matter how great you are at believing the strength of your faith, the quality of your faith. It matters what your faith is in. And so focus your attention not on how can I be awesome at believing in God, but how can I believe that God is awesome? And Jesus says in Matthew 7 that there is a day coming when there's a, he talks about not a stay-at-home order in terms of staying inside your house, but of how you build your house and where you build it. If you build it on a foundation of rock or foundation of sand, because there is going to be a storm that's going to come and test your life. And there's lyrics to a song and they say, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone and I will not be shaken. I will build my life upon your love because it's a firm foundation. And his love is not vague. His love is not kind of ethereal or an idea. His love is concentrated in a person, in Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin. He lived this sinless, perfect life. I heard somebody, some, somebody claimed this week, they're like, well, Jesus didn't live a perfect life. And I'm like, that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible is saying, is that he did live a perfect life because you know what the lamb had to be? It had to be spotless. It couldn't be just any old lamb that you just find in the flock. It was find a spotless one. And there was only one spotless lamb whose blood was worthy enough that had enough value to redeem all of mankind out of death, whose blood could be a stand-in for yours. Take that and paint it across your life. That's my invitation for you. And I'm making this invitation here. And, and you, you can be, you can do this anonymously in your heart. But, but I, I was talking with my friend Brian Cha-Cha this week about, hey man, where, where are invitations at these days? And, and I want to actually kickstart some invitations and say, man, if you maybe, maybe you've been just messing around with this your whole life. Maybe it was, maybe God, the God of Israel is just a bedtime story to you. Maybe he is just sort of this, you know, Santa Claus Easter bunny figure to you. And the idea idea of Jesus is nice, and, but you're really just trying to make sure that you have done enough stuff so that God can like you. Maybe for once in your life, you need to put your trust not in anything you've done, nothing you will ever do, nothing about you and your accomplishments. All of it's wrapped up in Jesus, how much he loves you, how perfect his life was for you, how he laid it down, not just vaguely, but with his very blood. Trust in that. If you haven't ever done that, trust in it for the first time now. And then if, if, if you have, and, and maybe this news is old to you, maybe this news is something you've heard a bunch of times, but maybe it's grown, you've grown kind of complacent to the danger of your soul, to this stay-at-home order. What I'm saying is you need to stay at home underneath the blood of Jesus. If you've grown complacent to that stay-at-home order, then be revived in that today. Be revived. 
If you're watching at home and you're just barely paying attention, you're trying to check the box of just doing this church thing, stop and just be revived. I listened to this vintage album by Shane and Shane. They released, it's just all these old songs. Like Awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. You guys could do that one, Matt. Throwback. All these throwback songs. And I was mowing my lawn listening to these songs. And I remembered as a teenager mowing my lawn listening to these songs. And my heart was able to just reach back and be, just kind of have this touch point of when, I, of my, when my faith in Jesus was young and fresh and, and really exciting. And there was a reviving that came through that. And so, man, be revived. Bring back, here's what I'm praying for you, that God would bring back the line of sight for your soul. What I mean is that your soul could set its eyes on Jesus. See the Lamb of God, that you would take your hands and run them over the doorposts of your life and see why it is that you are safe in the love of God. You are safe in God's love if it's Jesus' blood that's painted over the doorposts of your life. It's the deep red stains of the blood of Jesus that ensure that there has been a life that has been sacrificed for yours. It's not your resume. It's not your family name. It's not your income. It's not how much you've given away. It's not anything. It's not how many times you've read the Bible or how good you are at repenting or how good you are at sharing the gospel or how many times you've shared the gospel in your life or how many chapters you've read or how many times you stopped looking at pornography or how many times you stopped being mean to that person or any of that stuff. It's just Jesus's blood. And it means you're safe once and for all. And that in that you would be restored to the joy of your salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you do that? I'm, I'm sure of this, that the quality of the messenger and the quality of the message is lacking to accomplish the means or the ends for which I hope it is a means. Not at all is it uh, enough. But here's the thing, Jesus, I trust in you. I trust in your blood over my life, not even in my ability as a preacher or as a pastor, None of that will define me, just your blood. None of that will define me. Would my friends in this room and my friends in the hearing of my voice know that it is your blood, Jesus, that defines them, whether or not they are forgiven or unforgiven, hinges upon one thing, the blood of Jesus and the doorposts of our life. And so would you, would you Holy Spirit, go painting uh, on new doorposts today? Would you reach far and wide? Uh, would, would this invitation reach? Or would you make the, the ones who receive it inviters? Would you multiply this invitation of the gospel? God, it's what we need most. Would you multiply this invitation? of the gospel out into conversations this week? Would you supernaturally empower them? Would you bring people who are looking for a safety net, a true safety? Would you help them find that in Jesus? We need you. Would you help us not grow complacent with this stay-at-home order? Would you help us to receive it anew and help us to find joy and peace underneath your protection, Jesus? It's in your name we pray.